Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. We remember former Taoiseach and former Fine Gael leader John Bruton, who's died at the age of 76. As Taoiseach from 1994 to 1997, John Bruton led a rainbow coalition at a time of major social change and a faltering peace process in the North. He's been described as a giant of Irish politics. Also on the programme, we debate the upcoming referendum which would remove the constitutional reference to women in the home and provide a recognition of care within the family. And on his latest Middle East tour, the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, says a proposed ceasefire for Gaza now looks achievable after a positive response from Hamas. The president has led the tributes to John Bruton, describing him as a deeply committed politician. The former Taoiseach and former Fine Gael leader has been warmly remembered after his family announced his death this morning at the age of 76. In a statement, they said he died peacefully at the Matter Private Hospital in Dublin, surrounded by his family following a long illness. Mr Bruton also served as the European Union's ambassador to the US from 2004 to 2009. Well, joining me to discuss his legacy are former Deputy Leader of Fine Gael, Nora Owen, former Labour Party leader, Pat Rabbit, and by the former parliamentary correspondent to the Irish Times, Michael O'Regan. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, Nora, I want to come to you first. Um, John Bruton was a man who entered politics at a very young age, the age uh, entering the doll at the age of 22 in 1969. Now, you came into politics later on, but you're of the same generation. Yes. Uh, can you describe the man you knew and, and the man you'll remember? Well, I came into the doll in 1981. I was a bit older than 22. And when I, when I think about John entering the doll at 22, most young people now are probably only starting university or starting some kind of a career profession at that stage and John was in there and within two or three years he was what was called a parliamentary secretary uh, to, a, to a minister. Um, John was, he was a mixture of all sorts of characters but he was a very, very truly committed politician who wanted to do something for the country. And those of us who remember him well, remember how he always had a notebook with him everywhere he went. Um, they, were, they were like school copies. And if he was at a meeting, he would jot things into that. Or if he met somebody after he met them, he would take the notebook out if somebody had made a good suggestion or put out a new idea. So he was a man of constant ideas. Uh, some of his staff used to say from six o'clock in the morning, he might be ringing them, he'd get cabin fever and he'd ring and say, why did we do that yesterday? I think we should change it to this tomorrow. And he was really committed. But he was a true, true committed parliamentarian. 
And frankly, uh, we will not see somebody like him for a long time. I, d- I can't see many people now in the Dáil staying there for 35 and 40 years. And of course, Nora, you were deputy leader of Fine Gael and yes. also justice minister during his time as, time yeah. as Taoiseach. Uh, did you get those sort of phone calls in the middle of the night with fresh ideas or a review yes. on some policy that <laughs> yes. you were bringing to the cabinet G- table? Generally, when, he, when he'd have a, a bright idea at six in the morning, it tended to be his, his PA or, or his press officer or somebody like that. But uh, he would come up with you know, he'd, he would ring you up as minister and say, I was thinking about something that we might do. You know, we were tack- when I went in there, you know, the economy was lifting. So justice was getting much more scrutiny. And there was a very aggressive Fianna Fáil opposition person, John O'Donoghue, opposite me. So every day of the week, he was tackling me and attacking me. And, but John was very, very supportive and he would, might ring me up, particularly when I was under fire, and say, stick with it, that's a good policy, don't let him get you down, you know, that, that kind of thing. But he, he, was, he was very aware of all that was going on. Mm. And Pat now will remember when we were in government, he, he remembered being in government with Garrett. And I remember at the, one of the first cabinet meetings, he said, we are not going to have eight and nine hour cabinet meetings. He said that Garrett was absolutely always liked to have and they'd be ordering in pizzas and chips and things because the meeting would be going on so long. He said, we will try to work out if there's any difficulties between ministers. He would talk to the Fine Gael ministers and say, try to work closely with right. your colleagues from the Democratic left or Labour so we can avoid any tensions at right. Cabinet. And we say, I don't remember a vote, Pat. Do you ever remember a vote at Cabinet? No, no. Uh, I, I don't think no. there was a vote. So he tried that. to nip those issues in, in the bud before yes. he got to the Cabinet table. Yeah, he was a very uh, good chairman. Yeah. Uh, interesting on that one, um, uh, Pat, you've, you've talked about two Johns when you think about John Bruton's legacy. Explain that for us, if you will. Well, I think the early John Bruton was a very ideological, assertive politician. Uh, you know, he created waves. Uh, his relationship with the Labour Party was poor. Um, the John Bruton who assumed the Taoiseach's office was an entirely different man, mm-hmm. an immensely skillful manager of a three-party government, which, you know, was unusual at the time and where... Uh, there was a huge uh, progressive uh, tranche of legislation enacted, mm. uh, probably most memorably, uh, the divorce referendum. And I don't think that the bulk of the people associated John Bruton with campaigning for divorce. Mm. He, he had strong views on issues like that. But he was the critical element in that piece of legislation uh, uh, passing because of an intervention he made on the Sunday prior to the referendum. But you were very far apart on, on sides of the political spectrum. It must be said with Fine Gael and, of course, you were Democratic left, left, more lefty than Labour. So you must have had your differences there. I think it provided for great balance in the government. Mm. I mean, uh, don't forget, those years were the years of the uplift in the economy. Mm. Um, the performance in the economy during that government, I mean, that's why... It is rated, I think, generally speaking by people, as one of the better governments that we had in the last 50 years. It was an economic takeoff, uh, 52,000 jobs uh, added each year, uh, significant growth, keeping it on the rails in terms of public spending to avoid the kind of crash that we experience later. Uh, so, you know, um, 
there was a fairness and an impartiality about the way in which he managed it. And, of course, you're right, there was a certain amount of give and take. Did you think there would be an potentially internal coalition blow-ups there, given what you talk about, the person who was ideological and that, you know, the, the politician who really, you know, wore his colours and you knew, as a young politician... You, no, you know, I didn't, how, really. How, how I, I strongly didn't. he stood. He, it was clear that he was a much-changed and more moderate man in terms of his political outlook, are more tolerant, at least, of the views mm. of other people yes. and other parties. You know, he, he had changed. And, um, you know, it, it was a period of great hope after the 80s recession. Uh, immigrants were beginning to return uh, to Ireland. Uh, the prospects mm. economically looked good for, for the... Uh, as far as one could see into the future. So, you know, in that time, it was a propitious time mm. to be in government. And remember, Claire, that, that when John became finance minister in 1981 with Gareth Fitzgerald, they went into the Department of Finance and discovered that there had been lies told about the state of the economy. Mm. And John at that time actually said, if we're not careful, the IMF will come in and take over our economy. And, of course, it took 30 years for that to happen. But he, remember, he brought that experience with him to Cabinet to make sure that the economy was kept running smoothly. Uh, Michael, um, talking about that memories of that time and um, with John Bruton at the helm of government, you know, he was in there for a relatively, I suppose, short space of time and he was thrown into that position of forming a government in order to be Taoiseach with Labour and Democratic left. Would it be safe to say he got on better with Pat's party than with Dick Springs? Yes, he did. He had a much better relationship with Pat and Princess de Rossa who was Democratic left leader, then with Labour, and particularly Dick Spring. And why was that? Dick Spring and himself had clashed repeatedly, ideologically, uh, during the 82-87 government, which was a Fine Gael Labour government led by Gareth Fitzgerald. And there were a lot of late nights, cabinet, late night cabinet meetings, and a lot of angst uh, between the Labour ministers and particularly John Bruton. Uh, at that stage, we had... And that... that that, that lingered. Uh, we had, at that stage, the very ideological John Bruton. Uh, not terribly tolerant of other people's opinions. But, uh, and that's why the ideological John Bruton misread the political landscape, seriously misread it, in 1992. Uh, that, uh, Dick Spring had outshone him on the opposition benches. And when people, in that 92 election, when voters uh, abandoned Fianna Fáil in significant numbers, they didn't go to Fine Gael, they went to Labour. And in fact, Labour, uh, uh, Fine Gael in that election uh, had 45 seats. Now, that was down 10. By contrast, Labour uh, jumped 80, up 18 seats up to uh, uh, 33 seats. So in a sense, Dick Spring and Labour won the election. But, so there was uh, always that power, yeah, that but power John, struggle But John Bruton, there. you see, what, what happened then, Claire, was John Bruton misread the whole thing. He thought that uh, uh, there would be uh, Fine Gael, Labour... Mm. Progressive Democrats coalition. Um, Labour were not prepared to wear that. They wanted democratic left. He didn't want democratic left ideologically. Two years later, mm. there was a much more pragmatic uh, John Bruton and he had changed his mind. And democratic left came on board. It worked very successfully. Mm. He came into his own really as Taoiseach in yes. that he managed very successively and a three-party government. I want to talk... I want and to I talk think we should really recognise that after his long 
stewardship in politics, I was really pleased that he got to be the position of Taoiseach because mm. he deserved it. He had really served right. a great time uh, in politics. You know, yeah. uh, people have spoken today about, you know, his legacy um, it, with regard to Northern Ireland. Uh, yes. He held views that would appear to be, you know, at odds what many in, in this state believed at the time. I know there was that slip of the tongue. John Unionist, yes, yeah. he was referred to as... Um, how was he politically understood when it came to Northern Ireland? Nora? Well, J John had no time for Sinn Féin IRA. He was very angry with what they were doing, killing people, setting bombs, and he had no tolerance for what they were doing. And, but he recognised, as did Gareth Fitzgerald and other politicians, that you couldn't coerce the Unionists. They, they were British, they couldn't be coerced. And he knew that to get them people talking about a changed situation in the North, they had to be in the talks as well. He knew Sinn Féin had to be in the talks, but he found it difficult to talk with them. And ironically, why, his why unionist did, views or his help that? to the unionists, yeah. he wasn't liked by either side because he, he people said, oh, he's just pro-unionist. But he, he just knew that if you forced people to the table, they wouldn't come. And so when he became Taoiseach with John Major, they, they, remember the ceasefire happened in August of 1994. John became Taoiseach in December 94. And so things looked reasonably good to move forward. But then the, then the IRA broke the ceasefire in February 96. But Major and himself still worked. They prepared papers. They were getting ready to move things on. And I often think that getting the talks going so that they were delivered when Bertie Ahern came in was very crucial to getting to the Good Friday Agreement. If the table, as I call it, if the table hadn't been set out and chairs put this around was the, it, the, the framework, that was really the framework, the framework documents, documents which and getting George Mitchell onto the chair. Um, um, Pat, in that regard, you know, he was keen, that we kept hearing, he was keen to understand the unionist point of view. Did he get the nationalist position? Well, I, I think you see... Uh, his view has now become mainstream. Mm -hmm. I mean, his view was that when others weren't raising this, that there were a million people on the island of a different view who could not be coerced uh, into a, an All-Ireland arrangement. And, um, yeah, that caused him some enemies on the nationalist side of the fence. There's no doubt about it. But as things have evolved and as the party that supported a conflict for 30 years have now ended up confirming approval on the state of Northern Ireland and uh, pledged to make it work. Uh, you, you see, when the history is written, John Bruton was a Redmondite. Uh, there weren't many left he uh, during had, his time. He have John Redmond hanging up, a mm. picture hanging up in his office. That's I think right. when Bertie Ahern got in, he replaced it with that of Porrick Pierce. That's right, that's <laughs> right. And, and, and uh, interestingly enough... He, on and then ended up replaced with Michael rising, Collins. Yeah. He, he called it the rebellion and he said it created a recipe for endless conflict. He was very strong on that. Like, I'm actually just thinking of you, Nora, and, <laughs> and, and you know, where you are and being a granny, Michael Collins mm. and all of that. How did he feel about Collins? How did he feel about armed conflict and civil well, war? Well, I mean, he, he clearly didn't think what happened in 1916 was the right way to go. But as Pat said, he was a Redmondite. I mean, I remember going to Downing Street uh, when I was Minister for Justice and we were talking to uh, the Prime Minister there. He... We were standing outside the door of number 10 and himself and Dick both said to me, this must be a special day for you because the last member of your family 
to go in this store was Michael Collins. And so they understood where I was coming from. Mm -hmm. But I, I, it didn't cause any tension or any, any difference. And Pat is right. Uh, John's opinions about the unionists is now mainstream. But at the time he was saying it, um, they, you know, he was being I'm pilloried on sure all sides. That's entirely correct, Nora. And in the sense that uh, while the uh, certainly the views of unionists and all that have been now taken on board, the problem was, that, and it was very sincerely held by John Bruton, he was a very honourable, very sincere man, uh, but he came from that Redmondite tradition. And unlike Albert Reynolds and Bertie Ahern, he certainly didn't agree with sitting down with paramilitaries. Now, mm -hmm. Reynolds uh, was desperate to get a peace settlement and he met uh, the parliamentaries on both sides. Later, Bertie Ahern went through that very tedious process of negotiation, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But he, he very, very, you know, even his views in 1916, again, very sincerely held. Uh, and now how he ever uh, factored in the blue shirts, by the way, in the history of Fine Gael is another matter. But uh, um, he, he, in that sense, his perspective on nationalism, at that particular time now, uh, we all think differently now, but at that particular time when the peace process was at a fairly critical stage, it was much more limited than, we'll say, Reynolds Was it damaging, do you believe? Which? Was it damaging? Was it damaging uh, to the process? I, I don't think it helped, actually. Mm. I, I'm not sure it helped. Now, but it was shared right. by most of the country. People just oh, were yeah. by the way, really he was, angry about this. He was strongly supported in that by yes, many, many people. And if you recall, when John Hume had the Hume Adams talks, mm. he was pilloried by people in the Republic and sections of the media. Mm, that's right. So John Bruton wasn't alone in having no. that view. It no. was a strongly held view. Briefly, mm. I want to just ask about other controversies during his time in politics. They say it's the little things that trip you up, mm. namely that tax on children's shoes. Um, Pat, that, you know, he was Minister for Finance when he presided over that infamous budget decision um, in 1982 to impose that on children, on clothing and footwear. Now, the budget was defeated and led to the collapse of government. Did he carry, do you think, a lot of blame on that decision? Oh, he did, yes. I mean, he, he, he was a man of boundless energy. And uh, that energy sometimes, uh, you know, uh, took the form of aggression and uh, refusal at that stage of his mm. career to hear the views of others. And um, the uh, collapsing his own government on the budget wasn't exactly good politics. But he had very definite views on the future of the economy mm -hmm. uh, following what had gone before. Uh, but, yes, it did live with him. But um, he was quickly back in government and Minister for Industry and Commerce, uh, and it uh, quickly was something that was left behind. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. I, before we just go, I just want to express the sympathy of us to Fanola and the children and his brother Richard and his sister Mary because they've lost a loved father, a loved brother, a loved husband and we have to think about them at this time as well. We, we are all getting caught up in his political career but there's a family who's suffering badly now. Okay. Yeah, we all agree with yeah. that. Absolutely. 100%. There we leave it and we extend our sympathies too to the family of John Bruton at this sad time for them. My thanks to Nora Owen, to Pat Rabbit and to Michael O'Regan. Coming up next, we debate the upcoming referendum on care. To stay with us.
Welcome back. On March 8th, people will be asked whether they want to remove the clause in the Constitution that references a woman's life and a mother's duties in the home and replace it with a recognition of care within the family. The 40th Amendment to the Constitution will delete the current wording of Article 41.2 in Bunroch Naharan and will insert a new Article 42b. It reads, the state recognises that the provision of care by members of a family to one another by reason of the bonds that exist among them gives to society a support without which the common good cannot be achieved and shall strive to support such provision. But joining me to debate this from the no side are independent Senator Tom Clonan and Conservative commentator Laura Perrins. And on the yes side are Catherine Cox of Family Carers Ireland and Mary McAuliffe, Director of Gender Studies at UCD. And I should say that we will be debating the other proposed amendment, which is on the family at a later date. Um, but first, to kick off proceedings here and this discussion and debate about voting yes or no on March 8th, I'd like to get in under a minute, if I may, from each of you to tell us why you'll be voting um, no or yes in the referendum. Um, I'll start with you, Tom Clonan, and maybe you could tell us why you will be voting no in the referendum on care and why others should too. I think the wording of the amendment is toxic to the aspirations for autonomy of disabled citizens and carers. And I, I say this as a carer myself. I don't have an ideological view per se, on the, on the wording of the amendment, but it, it places the, the responsibility for caring exclusively in the family and doesn't, as was recommended by the, uh, the Citizens' Assembly and the Joint Rockers Committee on Gender Equality, to actually put in a provision that the state will support carers. And anybody like me or all the half a million Irish people who are carers out there know the state is indemnified in this wording from any support. It protects and doesn't assert the rights of disabled citizens or carers to state support. And in fact, it will confine care to the, to the family and 98% of unpaid carers within the family are women and girls. So it will have the precisely opposite effect of that that people believe it will. Okay. Um, thank you for that, Tom. Laura Perrins, to come to you. Tell us why you are advocating a no vote in the referendum on March 8th. Well, I think people should vote no because we need to be very clear that, first of all, what, what Article 41.2.1 doesn't say. It doesn't say that a woman's place is in the home, which some people say it is. And Justice Denham was very clear that there was no mandate, there was no should in the article. What the article does say is that the state recognises that by her life within the home woman gives to the state a support without which the common good cannot be achieved. Now, the government, and it goes on to recognise the duties that mothers have, have in the home. Now, the government is proposing to literally delete the word woman and mothers from our constitution. Now, the role that women have had over the years, of course, has changed immensely outside the home, but the importance of their work, the love and the care and the work that they do within the home the importance that they do there, that hasn't changed. If anything, it's gotten more important. There's nothing sexist in the idea of, of a woman. There's nothing sexist in the idea that she has duties and obligations in the home and the article should remain as it stands. All right, OK, we've heard there. Thank you, Laura, from both on the no side in this upcoming referendum. I'd like to turn now to... 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Catherine Cox um, from Family Carers Ireland. Give us your take on why people should vote yes in this referendum. We believe people should vote yes because if yes goes through, for the first time ever, family carers will be recognised and valued in our constitution and that will be enshrined. But also, we believe this will place an onus on the government to support their care. Um, I think, secondly, um, this is about... We want to live in an inclusive, equal and a caring society. Um, with regards to a woman's place, we believe a woman's place should be wherever she wants that to be, whether it's in the home, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in education, that should be her choice. And the last thing I would say is this is a whole of societal issue. This is about men, this is about women. Carers, the breakdown is actually 61% female, 39% men. And we want more men to be able to take up that caring role. And by putting this in our constitution, remember, our constitution is a statement of our values. And this is saying we value care in the home. And we will push government, I can guarantee you, to ensure that they do support that care. OK, thank you for that, uh, Catherine. Mary McAuliffe, I'd like to uh, move to you and briefly tell us why you will be advocating for a yes vote in the upcoming referendum on care. I think we have to look back at the intent of the framers of the Constitution and uh, what they meant by the Women in the Home Articles and why they were intensely opposed by women activists and feminists at the time in 1937. What those women opposed was the ideology of domesticity, which was they saw as constraining and constricting women's lives to the home, not as a privilege, but as a social function as defined by a conservative church and state privileging the idea of the male breadwinner and seeing the domestic as the natural, indeed, only place for women and mothers. It's true women are no longer confined to the home. Uh, since the 1970s, feminist campaigns have led to legislation and have overturned many of those bars to women in the workplace and women in the public, but not all. And we see the legacy still of that women in the home articles through, for example, the gender pension gap. So on March the 8th, 87 years after the insertion, we have an opportunity to remove these reductive, um, singular definitions of women and mother in the home. They don't represent women and they don't represent what families are today. OK, um, so uh, 
Laura, just to bring you in on that point, because um, what Mary is saying would, would appear to be, you know, directly conflicting with your viewpoint on it and the references of, to the role of women that will be removed. And the text was written back in 1937. So many, like Mary, argue that is, it is archaic, it is outdated. And there's been a long campaign for change to this, to reflect today's society that doesn't reduce a woman's place to solely being in the home. So we know that the article doesn't mandate women in the home. And it's certainly the case that you can give it a narrow reading. That, 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 that's certainly, the, that's true. But if you actually look at the words in front of you, the words that as read by the text, the state recognises that by her life within the home, women gives to state a support without which the common good cannot be achieved. What's wrong with that? It is reality, as you've already said, that women do the majority of caring work within that home, be it the, the, the mundane domestic tasks or the very important close supervision and education of, of, of okay, children. But it doesn't talk about it's, women in professional life or women outside the home and other aspects but lots of the constitution. Of other, no, so yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yes. So from that but point of view... Everybody else talks about that. You can't pick up a paper without people telling you how fabulous it is to be, to not be in the home. So I think it's great so that you have this one article... Just let me finish. I think it's, this, it's great that we have this one article. Hardly anything in public policy now is, goes, says the work that women do in the home is really valuable. It's right. not just a private choice. It actually furthers the common good. We, we could have added a, a carer's right. reference, but to erase women in this way and erase mothers in this way, I believe is wrong. OK, and that is an argument from the no side on this, Mary, mm. is that, Absolutely. you know, and, yeah. and coming from a feminist point of view, what do you think of the idea of removing a reference to women from the Constitution? Well, we're not removing women from the Constitution. Women as citizens remain in the Constitution as full and equal citizens. Um, what is being removed is this very reductive, singular image uh, or model of femininity that you needed to be a marital woman in the home. That's what it means. It doesn't recognise women outside of the home. As you mentioned, it doesn't recognise all the other things that women do in society. It never recognised mothers who were not married within marriage. They were always excluded from this image of, uh, that was inserted into the Constitution. So it's a very prescriptive and reductive mm -hmm. vision of women. But Laura's argument is that you will see, you know, references to women in professional life and that's, um, you know, how society and how, how we, we talk about well, it now. A reference in a newspaper is very different. Women in a home environment. A reference in a piece of policy or a newspaper is very different from a constitutional reference. You cannot compare apples and oranges like wouldn't that. You, wouldn't you agree with that, Laura? It's a different thing, isn't it? I mean, we're arguing here about the constitution, not about a conversation yeah, I, I, that people I, will have in society. I think, I think what's in, in the constitution is incredibly important. That's probably one of the one things that we can agree on. And I think valuing women and mothers and their role within the home is incredibly important and should remain. Personally, I think, you know, you, you women outside the home, they get paid, they get recognition, you can get awards, you can get, you know, footballer of the year. That's all taken care of. This is the one tiny little reference that says, you know what, stopping your three-year-old sticking their finger in a, in a socket every day and keeping your children alive and giving them moral grounding and educating them, you know, we think that's really important. We think that serves the common good. So why can't we just leave it and that's add something else if you view. want to? Absolutely a reductive view. Mother, mothers view? are valued in society. Absolutely, they really? they're valued in society. Everybody has a mother. So, you know, we need to have a, a constitutional view of women that is realistic. 
the, re and the, 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 the reality is, is bring some other voices in as yeah. well, just on this, <clears throat> Catherine. You know, isn't it by its nature, whether we like it or or not, and um, that the the the, 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 the the role of care is carried primarily by women. Um, and does this change to wording erase that in a way? That's no, the argument we're hearing from Laura and from others. Absolutely not. This enshrines in our constitution that recognition and that value. Um, and the wording, while it is strive, government will strive to support that care. If you look up the word strive, the definition is shall fight vigorously uh, to make that happen. And we will ensure that we push the government to fight vigorously to do just that. At the moment, we have no recognition in our constitution for family carers. We have no recognition on the value of the work that they do. A yes, yes will put that recognition into our constitution. It will give us a platform to fight for better supports. We know year on year we come out saying how poor a respite is for carers, how poor the supports they have. This is a step in the right direction. It might be seen as a small step for some, but it is a step in the right direction and a positive step. All right. Uh, Tom, you take issue with this as someone who yeah, is a I, carer look, and advocates I, for I, carers. There's care a split within the caring community on this. What's your issue specifically with the oh, wording? OK, so, you know, it's not so much what we're taking out of the Constitution that exercises me, it's what we're putting in. And the wording has been very carefully selected. That word strive is not justiciable, it's not enforceable. And the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, the legal experts say that it will... It, what it does is it indemnifies the state against any costs implied in caring and places it solely... It gives constitutional expression to the idea that caring will be the, the duty by their bonds of the family. Now, I've, I've experienced as, as a carer over the last 20 years resistance from the HSE and from the state to providing support and care for, for a disabled child who's now an adult. When, I, when my son progressed to the adult services, the senior social worker in my healthcare area, when I asked the question, what will happen to my son when I die? He said, well, what are you worried about? Doesn't he live at home with you? So that contains within it the paternalistic notion, the patriarchal notion that care resides within the family. Okay. She then said, I said, well, what happens when I die? And she said, well, does he have siblings? Does he have a daughter? Or sorry, do you have a daughter? And I said, yes. Well, she'll look after him when you die. And that's precisely what is coded into this wording. The state, last Although week... Although it is removing the last week to, no, to a woman in that... But I'm not... Is, yeah, but, it, but, but what they've put in... The, what they the have put in... Care. What about... Uh, no, I'm could I just finish? On that. Last week, the, the government right. voted against ratification of all protocols of the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. And last year, the government rejected my disability rights bill. They do not want to give disabled citizens and carers the right to care. And this is a missed opportunity. It goes contrary to what was recommended in the Citizens' Assembly and by the Oireachtas, Joint Oireachtas Committee on, on Gender okay. Equality. Okay. This is a retrograde step. OK. Uh, Catherine, despite what you're saying about, mm -hmm. you know, family care being enshrined now in the Constitution, if a yes vote is given to this, um, what, what 
Tom and others are saying about that is it simply does not go far enough because it's not extended to the community. So the burden of care is placed entirely on the family. I, I don't agree. Whilst they recognise the family carer and the care that is provided, it does not place explicit responsibility of care on the family alone. It says they recognise the care that's provided with bonds between the family. And that flexible wording, we believe, also includes disabled people. It allows for better supports in the community as well. So it doesn't explicitly say the responsibility is on the family, but rather they recognise how important their role is and the state will strive to support that. But it does that. not go as far as what the Citizens' Assembly wanted no, about uh, the extension of that it care doesn't, to but be, the wording being from, within the community. The, from that point of view, does it concern you? No, it doesn't, actually, because I think the wording is flexible and broad enough that it can include care in the community because for a family to care for a loved one, they need the support of care in the community. And this also extends... It doesn't talk about family carers. It talks about care in the family. And that means that disabled people are included in that as well. So this is broad enough to include the rights of disabled people, older people who require care, people with disabilities. This is broad uh, enough what about a disabled, that. What about a disabled citizen like my son who wants to live outside of the family? Like every other citizen of the state. His siblings, my other children, have the expectation that they can move out, go abroad, live independently and autonomously and self-actualise. He can't, because this gives constitutional expression to the idea that he will be cared for by the family. We actually want the same thing, Claire, but I won't accept the wording that's contained within this amendment. It is reductive, it mm. is paternalistic, it is a pat on the head... And what it does not do, it gives the HSE an opt-out to providing the care and supports that we need. Last year, when Joe Biden came to visit, I began a conversation mm. with the HSE, the health services, the, the dis oh, disability yeah. service manager, to get three hours of care extra for my son. And here we are, all a right. year and oh, almost a year Catherine, later. Just, nothing. I just want, I want just and in fact, the all they did do was Tom. reviewed our medical to, to card as a sanction for right. looking for that extra okay. care. You're talking about a state that is incorrigible. You're... you're talking about a health service. And we are the only jurisdiction in the European Union oh, where right. disabled Catherine, citizens and carers have, have no legal to right to care or support. I and this okay. copper fast. I understand the frustration. We, we deal with family carers every day. But a family carer stood up and said today a no vote on the 8th of March would be another door slamming in her face because she believes that this is about that recognition and this is about that value of care. Um, so, so for, you know, for Tom... And by the way, if we get a no vote, the status quo remains. A no vote isn't going to get us all of those things that Tom has talked about that we all want. It will mean that we keep the status quo. Cares won't be recognised. They the won't be valued, and they will not be supported. With Article 19 of the UN okay. Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Mary, it, it also speaks, leaves it the articles, those reductive, sexist, misogynistic articles on women in the Constitution for, I would argue, another generation because it won't be revisited. And so, voting against this is voting against. Equality, full, full I, equality I for women. I think that's a false I, I do not. I do not think and, that is and, so. And I if think... I could say, I'm not asking anybody, I'm not telling anybody how to vote. I'm just here to say, I'll be voting no, and these are the All reasons right. why. Absolutely, okay. and I'll be I voting just want to get your, yes. your take on it. When we hear from others saying, if you vote no to this, it means that's it, it's done, it's dusted, and we won't be revisiting it. That's what you would like. 
ultimately? Look, I think you can certainly add a carer's amendment. Certainly, it seems closer to what Tom would like if, if it, there's clearly a, a split in the caring, in the, in the caring community. Um, and I don't think it's a case of, you know, let, let, that's it, that's the end. There, there should be recognition for all types of care within the family that doesn't let the state off the hook either. But this is very specifically... I mean, Mary is, is, is clear on this, right? You want, you want the idea of women and mothers um, and the, uh, the obligations and duties that they have in the home erased. You, you don't like those kind of values. I think they're still incredible. Oh, that is not true. That is not true. Are they not incorporated when they speak they, about they members of a family? family. Yes. Are, so, are, there are women they, they, who are members yes, of a family. absolutely. Yes, so yes. But what, you're, what view, you're doing here is literally deleting the it's unique it's role. It's including everyone. It, but you're delete, but at the cost of deleting the unique role that mothers and women have, because I don't think the roles are exactly the same, and that's probably where the fault line lies. Do you think it's letting and men I off just, the hook? No, I don't think it's letting off men off the hook. I think it's 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 recognising the reality that women still carry the burden of care. And I just just finally, but forty two uh, will, will put that my, in that, my, that, that the my, families but it's not, will, it's not recognising the reality and women. Yes. It's not recognising the reality. Care. I'll come it's to you gender and, neutral. I'll come to you Value uh, of care. Mary, it's not recognising the reality briefly. that mothers and women will continue to take on the vast majority of care, and there's, there's that those obligations and duties are important. There's nothing sexist or wrong in the word woman, or home, or indeed mother. Ask yourself if you're a woman. What's the prudent thing to do here? Should I reduce my constitutional status? If men were being asked to erase a reference to what they do, okay. the work they do, do you think they'd be lining up to vote for this? I doubt it very right. much. Mary, I, I just Absolutely. want to get to you. I, I, I completely and the idea disagree that with that. If you were to change it and not refer to a family, maybe refer to women and men, uh, parents. I don't know now what Laura I think would the, be on the, that, the, but there has been one suggestion from those who would take a, a view. The idea of home in the Constitution as it stands is the marital family. Very narrow, the, the um, um, single, the nuclear family as based on marriage. Um, that need, not all families are like that. You have uh, same-sex families, you have single-parent families, you have foster families, you have cohabitating couples, you have all those sort of things. And others, other than women, also produce care in the home. Now, yes, the majority of care still uh, rests on the shoulders of women. That's unfortunate in our society, and that is changing, not right. quick enough, but it is changing. And I think these reductive articles need to come out all of the right. Constitution to uh, reflect that. OK, and we will continue to hear these arguments in the run-up uh, to the March 8th referendum. And we will be returning, as I say, to that other um, referendum as well around um, the, the definition of family. But we will leave uh, that one here for now. My thanks to Laura Perrins, to Catherine and to Mary McAuliffe. Um, we're going to have Tom Cloneman staying on with us because after the break, I'll be discussing the latest hopes for a peace deal in the Middle East. Do stay with us. US Secretary of State has said an agreement on a proposed ceasefire for Gaza could be possible after Hamas responded positively to the latest proposals. Anthony Blinken was speaking in Doha, having met the Qatari government, which is working to broker a ceasefire that would involve an extended halt in fighting and the release of over 100 hostages still being held by Hamas. Qatar's Prime Minister expressed optimism that a deal could be reached. Mr Blinken told reporters that the US was reviewing the latest response.
So together with Qatar uh, and Egypt, we put forward, as you know, a serious proposal that was aimed at not simply repeating the previous agreement, but expanding it. Uh, as the Prime Minister just said, Hamas responded tonight. We're reviewing that response now, uh, and I'll be discussing it with the government of Israel tomorrow. There's still a lot of work to be done, but we continue to believe that an agreement is possible and indeed essential. I'm joined again in studio by Senator Tom Clonan, who's also a security analyst. Tom, to come to you on this, uh, what do we know about this Qatari peace deal? There's been little or no sign of peace to date. Is it a temporary truce that we're talking about here? Uh, the suggestion is that this would be a truce that would last for 40 days, approximately. And the hope would be that that would provide a window of opportunity for a permanent ceasefire. Um, Netanyahu has said in the last 24 hours that they have, the Israeli Defence Forces, have managed to kill approximately 50% of Hamas's strength. But that has come at the cost of almost 30,000 civilian deaths and 67,000 seriously injured Palestinian men, women and children. So if you follow that logic, in order for Netanyahu to continue the war, as he said he will do for a few months, you could end up with over 100,000... Sorry, you could end up with between dead and injured 200,000 Palestinians. Mm. That's actually literally decimation of the Palestinian population. It's almost a biblical concept and, and it is genocidal in nature. So, you know, I think the world will be hoping for a pause in the immediate term to, to save Palestinians from this awful and illegal conflict, but also to prevent wider escalation because the United States have carried out airstrikes on proxies. Mm. We're very, very close to a regional escalation with Iran. I mean, the US haven't called for a ceasefire to date. Uh, they say that's a win to Hamas if they do so, but they are under immense pressure as well at this point and they're trying to get this done, are they, before a threatened Israeli assault on Rafah, which will lead to I, many I, more casualties. I, I think everybody knows that the, the, Palis, the, the Palestinians, civilians in, in Gaza are now concentrated in Rafah and down near Khan Yunus in the south, almost two million people, and they're already an extremist because of the lack of water, access to, to, you know, sanitation and and proper food and nutrition. It, it, it's, it's the most appalling human rights, or sorry, humanitarian catastrophe in the region. And it, it really doesn't have a precedent. But if you were to begin a major offensive in Rafa, in and amongst that civilian population, apart from it breaching the laws of armed conflict and the Geneva Conventions, it will inevitably lead to an escalation in innocent civilian lives, mm. and, and particularly children. And uh, pushing uh, the US with all of this, is it uh, a genuine threat now of regional escalation? Yeah, well, the Americans have committed a number of aircraft carrier groups to the eastern Mediterranean. These are massive assets. They don't deploy those without there being a strategic reason. They've also committed a marine expeditionary force. So these are ground troops because the United States knows that if Iran gets involved by supporting Hezbollah, through the border with Lebanon, then the Americans will have to go in on the ground and it will be a regional war that involves US troops on the ground, in the sea, uh, in the air. And I, I don't think anybody wants that. And it'll be catastrophic for the region and it'll be catastrophic for Israel. And briefly, Hamas has said uh, that it wants a comprehensive and complete ceasefire. Is this likely? You mentioned 40 days. I mean, could it be, go beyond that? Is there any well, hope that this could lead to something more permanent? I mean, I think we, we, 
any any reasonable person would like to see uh, a permanent ceasefire. But Hamas have committed war crimes and they have stated that they want to eradicate the Israeli state. That's unacceptable. So their demand for a permanent ceasefire cannot be accompanied by a continuation of their policy of genocide towards Israel and Israeli civilians. But at the moment, the people who are suffering the most, the people at the centre of gravity of suffering here are innocent Palestinian men, women and children. All right, OK. Tom Clonan, there we leave it for now. We'll have more on that and what Blinken might say to the Israeli government tomorrow. Um, but for now, we leave it. That is it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. And you can also now find us on Instagram and on TikTok. But from all the late team here, good night and do take care.